Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Love it. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage, Colossians chapter 4. We're actually going to look at two different passages primarily today. Uh, We'll be there in Colossians 4. We'll also be over in 1 Peter 3, if you want to put a finger there as well. But we will start in Colossians. Well, if you uh, read just about any of the stats or studies out there right now, there's really no denying that religion in America is struggling. As of 2020, only 47% of U.S. adults said that they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That might sound like a lot or not a lot, just depending on your background, but just for you to know, that is the lowest number by far, lowest percentage, since people started keeping track of that sort of thing back in 1940 or so. And that represents not just a decline in organized religion, but a rapid decline. It's down from 68% just 20 years ago. And if you break those numbers down by generation, the picture gets even more bleak. Generation X is less affiliated than baby boomers are, millennials even less than Gen X, and Gen Z is on track to be the least affiliated of any generation thus far in American history. Basically, the percentage of people involved in church decreases with each new generation. It's basically the stats for which generations use TikTok, but in reverse. (laughs) Now, it would be easy to explain this phenomenon away using the same narratives that we often have, right? So we could insist that as society becomes more and more secular, then more and more accepting of attitudes and behaviors at odds with historically orthodox Christianity, then of course, less and less people are going to be interested in church. The problem, we could say, is that the way of Jesus is just viewed as too morally demanding for the average American. And to be sure, sometimes that's the case. But I think to view it that way would also be to miss at least a lot of what's going on in our society around this topic. Because that's not always the dynamic at play. Sometimes the problem is actually the exact opposite. As Christianity Today contributor Russell Moore once put it, he said, the problem now is not that people think the church's way of life is too demanding, too morally rigorous, but that they have come to think that the church doesn't believe its own moral teachings. We are losing a generation, he says, not because they are secularists, but because they believe we are. In quite the twist, many people are leaving the church or just never approaching the church in the first place, not because the church is too moral, but because it's not moral enough. 
when there is a new headline every other month in the news about a pastor caught in scandal or a Christian personality who gets outed as a predator, the problem more and more is actually the lack of moral standards among Christians, not the overabundance of them. The problem could be that we actually look too much like the outside world, not that we are too different from it. If you don't believe me on that, just listen to non-Christian Ben Sixsmith. He's a contributor to the online publication, The Spectator. He says this, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me, a non-Christian, feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share, if Christians share 90% of my lifestyle and my values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Likely without knowing it, Ben there in the article is actually channeling Jesus of Nazareth. Who once said to followers of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So it would appear that at least one thing we could stand to work on as followers of Jesus isn't relaxing our moral teachings or making them more marketable to the masses it would appear that we actually need to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus if we follow those teachings ourselves. And that's part of what I want to talk to you about this morning. We'll start with Colossians 4. So the book of Colossians, if you're unfamiliar with it, is actually a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a church in the ancient city of Colossae. Hence the name of the book. So he addresses all sorts of topics in the letter as a whole, but in this section of the letter, he's talking specifically about mission, about how Christians in that city should go about relationships and conversations they have with those outside the church, people who don't yet follow Jesus. Here's what he says about it. Pick it up with me in verse 5. He says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation with them be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that, notice this language here, you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I want you to flip over with me, like I said, to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. The book of 1 Peter, if you're not familiar, is another letter written to early followers of Jesus, specifically written to followers of Jesus who were experiencing a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution at the time that it's written. Peter, who's the author, is giving them some instruction on how to navigate that persecution, that suffering. And in this portion of the book, he's actually going to say something strikingly similar to what Colossians 4 just said. He's just going to language it slightly differently. So look at what he says, 1 Peter 3, starting in 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared, and this part should sound familiar here, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. 
So if you're new around here, we are nearing the end of a series we've been in all about mission. We've been talking about how to help those in our lives that don't yet know Jesus come to know him. And last week, we talked about how a lot of doing that, a lot of mission, is simply asking good questions to people. We said that many of us too quickly jump to arguing with people or reasoning with people about the issues they might have with Christianity, when instead, it might be more helpful for us to start by asking questions. It might be helpful to spend more time understanding where they're coming from and why they have the hangups that they do with our faith before we just go spouting off an answer to them. But this week, we find out, based on what we just read in those two passages, that part of mission is also evidently about answering people's questions, right? It used that exact language, right? It said that we should be prepared to answer people about our faith. That does indeed matter when it comes to mission. But what I want you to see today is that these questions, the questions that Colossians and 1 Peter are talking about, They are a specific type of question, really. They're not so much ideological questions as they are practical ones. So some people have used these passages, the two that we just read, to insist that Christians need to educate themselves in something called apologetics. So giving rational answers and defenses for core tenets of the faith. This has prompted all sorts of books to be written on apologetics over the years. If you're a little bit older in the room, books like More Than a Carpenter or The Case for Christ. If you're younger in the room, maybe a book like Tim Keller's Reason for God. All of these books are about essentially apologetics, right? They they walk through logical and philosophical defenses for believing what we believe. And I think apologetics certainly have their place. It can be really helpful to provide rationale for why we believe what we believe and how it's a reasonable thing to believe what we believe. I think that's all important. But as important as it is, I will say that those sorts of things don't seem to be the main point being made in the passages we just read. In Colossians 4 and in 1 Peter 3, it seems like the answers that we're being told to give are to slightly different types of questions than those. They're not answers about the age of the earth or about the historicity of Jesus or about the trustworthiness of the Bible. They're not questions like that at all. The answers being discussed in these two passages are actually answers about the way that we live as followers of Jesus. For example, Colossians 4 started off by saying, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. That word act is the Greek word peripateo, and it means most literally to walk. It was an expression that described how you conducted the entirety of your life. So when Paul says, be wise in the way that you act, what he means is be wise in the way that you live. Be intentional in the way that you carry yourself and go about your life, even and especially around those who don't yet follow Jesus. And then in 1 Peter, it says that we should, quote, revere Christ as Lord in our hearts. Now, when it says in our hearts, you need to understand that it doesn't mean the emotional, sentimental sides of us. In Greek and Hebrew thought, the heart was the effective center of your entire being, your thinking, your feeling, your living, your acting, everything about you, they thought, originated in your heart. So you and I might would say something like, honor Christ as Lord with everything you've got, 
or with every fiber of your being. That's the idea that Peter is getting across there. With everything that you and I can muster, we are to honor Jesus as Lord with every aspect of how we live. So in both of these passages, the thinking is that we should allow our lives to demonstrate the effects of the gospel. We should let it shape the way that we live as followers of Jesus. And then that if we do that often enough, it will eventually raise questions in the people around us about why we live that way. People will look at our lives and they will think, that's different. That's different from how I think about my life. That's different than how I think about my relationships, my money, my sexuality, my time, my possessions. That is different from my life. I wonder why it's different. And often, they'll be prompted to ask questions about it. Maybe not at first, but over time. And these New Testament authors, Peter and Paul, are saying that those questions, when they come up from your non-believing friends and coworkers and neighbors and classmates, those questions evidently are prime opportunities to give people an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have. In other words, to talk to people about Jesus. So the questions here are not necessarily questions about beliefs that we hold or even the intellectual basis for believing those beliefs. They are questions about the types of lives that we live. One of the greatest resources you have at your disposal to help people in your life discover Jesus is your life and the way that you choose to live it. And I think that's important to point out because I don't know that we always act as if that's true as followers of Jesus. I don't know that we often treat our lives as the incredible resource that they are in demonstrating the gospel. Generally, when we think about mission or evangelism within the church, we, we end up thinking primarily about the things that we say, right? We tend to think about our words, how we talk about the gospel, but I wonder if, if sometimes the reason that our efforts at evangelism come across as stale and impotent at times is because we are trying to do something with our words alone that God meant for us to do with our words and our lives. I, I wonder if we're trying to only explain something that was meant to be embodied and then explained. The gospel is meant to be spoken, yes, but it's also meant to be demonstrated. So we hinted at this all the way back in week one of our series, right? When we defined what we meant by the word mission. We said that the word mission has two components to it. Do you remember what they were? So mission is articulating the gospel, but it's also what? Demonstrating the gospel. It, there's two components to it, and both of those components are really important because it's us demonstrating the gospel as followers of Jesus that shows people around us that we're not just blowing smoke when it comes to the stuff that we believe. It communicates to people around us that Christianity is not just a set of intellectual beliefs to agree with, but it is a way of life to be lived and practiced. And if Peter and Paul knew what they were talking about, and I'm going to say that they did because it's the Bible and all, right? It is actually demonstrating the gospel that often creates opportunities to articulate the gospel. 
There's a quote that gets batted around among Christians sometimes. It goes something like this. Preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Yep. So we don't actually know where the quote comes from. It often gets attributed to a guy named St. Francis, but all indicators is that he didn't actually say it. But some people love that quote and some people hate it, is what I've found. Some people love it, some people hate it. The people that hate it argue that it misrepresents what the gospel is, because if the gospel is news, that means it has to be spoken, right? And I think that's a really good point to make. I mean, it's not as if you can just like mow your neighbor's grass every week for a year, and one day they're going to be watching you mow their grass, and they're going to be like, you know what? From the way that they are, they're trimming the edges of my yard, I actually think that Jesus of Nazareth might be the God of the universe, and I think I might need to give my life to him. Like, that's probably not going to happen. I mean, the Spirit can do what he wants to do, but that's probably not going to happen. If you want somebody to know the good news of Jesus, eventually you are going to have to talk to them about it, right? Or somebody is, right? Somebody's going to actually have to use words to talk about it. But at the same time, I think I get the point that the quote was trying to make. They were simply trying to call our attention to the fact that the gospel isn't only something that is spoken, it is also something that's demonstrated something that is embodied, that is represented in how we live and how we speak and how we treat others. I love how Paul alludes to this in another one of his letters, 1 Thessalonians. He says this, we'll put it up on the screen. It says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, you know how we, and what's this next word here? You know how we what? Lived among you for your sake. So evidently the gospel came to the Thessalonian Christians, not just in words, but in other ways as well. And at least part of that was due to the way that the Thessalonians observed the way that Paul and his companions were living among them. The way that they lived embodied the gospel to these early followers of Jesus. Peter actually makes this point even clearer in the previous chapter of his letter before the passage that we read a little bit earlier. In 1 Peter 2, he says this, live such good lives among the pagans, which in context just means those who don't yet know Jesus. Live such good lives among them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, a central component to people on the outside coming to know and worship the God of the universe is by observing the good deeds of followers of Jesus, how they live their day-to-day -day lives. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, famously summed it up this way. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And then finally, the, the author of the book of Hebrews states all of this sort of inversely. He states it the other way around. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. In other words, uh, to be different, to be distinct in how you live. Because without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, 
no one will see the Lord. In other words, the way that we live as followers of Jesus is so important to mission that without us living wholly distinct lives, Hebrews says that no one will actually come to see who God is at all. Those are strong words. But this is how central our lives are to how the gospel gets communicated to our world. The gospel is not just something to be spoken, it is something to be embodied and demonstrated in the way that we live. Now, with all of that said, I want us to pause here for a moment and I need everybody to just take a deep breath. Can you literally do that with me? Didn't that feel great? I guess that's why they do it in yoga, right? It just feels so, I feel so relaxed now all of a sudden. All right, here's why I asked you to do that. Because I know for a lot of us, especially those of us that grew up around the church or have any experience with the church, as we hear all of that, that I just said, we can almost feel this tension building in our chest. This feels like it is putting a lot of pressure on us, right? So I want you to hear me say this loud and clear, and I want you to look at me when I say it. Living differently does not mean living perfectly. Living differently does not mean living perfectly. Those are different things. There are plenty of ways to live distinctively in our world without living perfectly, and there are plenty of ways for you to be imperfect and yet still be different and distinct to those around you. So I had a friend in college named Zach. Zach's life was, by most any measures, a total mess. And the only reason I feel comfortable explaining it that way to you is because that is literally how Zach described his own life. As in, he would meet people for the first time and he would say, hey, my name's Zach and I love Jesus, but I'm a mess. That was his introduction to people. It was fantastically awkward, was amazing when he did it. But some of Zach's story was that he had been addicted to alcohol, Adderall, and I think a few other substances for several years prior to coming to know Jesus. And even though he had been sober for a year or so by the time that I knew him, he, st he still dealt with a lot of residual effects of his addiction. So one of them, the main one, was that he had a really quick temper. It took very little for him to become perturbed by somebody and, and even just cuss people out if they frustrated him. Like even random people that he didn't even know. That's how bad his temper was. But for years of his life, the way that he would deal with that is that he would just go home later and he would use to numb his frustration at the world. Now that he wasn't using anymore, it just came out in those random moments. He had a really quick temper. But here's the thing, Zach knew that about himself. He knew that that wasn't okay. He knew that wasn't consistent with what it meant to follow Jesus. And so Zach had a habit where anytime he would lose his temper with someone, he would go back and sincerely apologize to them for losing his temper, like, like a genuine uh, self-effacing apology. And I do mean he had a habit of doing this, as in I don't think there was a single time I knew of that Zach lost his temper with someone when, once he was a follower of Jesus and didn't go back to apologize to the person immediately afterwards, to the point where sometimes it was quite awkward. So one time he was on a trip, he stopped along the way at one of the exits to grab coffee at a Starbucks, 
And they were taking too long with his order, as Starbucks often does. I'm sorry if you work at Starbucks, but unfortunately it's a correct stereotype, right? Sometimes Starbucks takes too long with your order. And so he had to wait too long, and all of a sudden, this temper just exploded out of him. He, he just all of a sudden lost it on one of the baristas that was there, like just throwing out F-bombs like they were free. I mean, it was, it was something to behold in that moment. So he just lost it on this particular barista. And, and so what happened was he got the coffee, he hopped in his car, he drove about 10 miles down the interstate, and he realized what had happened. And he realized that he had to go back and apologize. And so he gets off the interstate, turns around, drives 10 miles back to this Starbucks, gets in line, waits in line for 10 minutes to talk to the barista who he cussed out just a few minutes earlier, and then he apologizes to her. It was the weirdest thing I've ever been there for. I, I know because I was there and it was horrible. Like she didn't know what to do. At this point it had been like, I don't know, 30 minutes since she had seen him. Like it was, it was crazy. And, but he just genuinely apologized to her. He said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's not okay for me to treat somebody like that. And so I just wanted to apologize and ask for your forgiveness. And that's just who Zach was. He, he loved Jesus, but he was a mess. But here's the thing, I kid you not, Zach ended up having more conversations with people about Jesus than most Christians I knew at the time, including me, because he had this habit of apologizing when he had fallen short. Because he was noticeably different. Zach was not perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination, but he was different. So different, in fact, that it led to a whole lot of conversations with people about Jesus. So listen, when I say that we should live distinct, different kinds of lives as followers of Jesus, I need you to hear that I'm not talking about us being perfect. I don't expect that. God does not expect that. that that's one thing that the cross of Jesus is all about, right? Jesus was perfect for us, so we do not need to be perfect. He is not expecting that from us for us to be perfect. He, in fact, knew that we wouldn't be, and that's why the cross was necessary. But he does invite us to be different. We are called to live differently, like Zach, like millions of other followers of Jesus who have lived imperfect yet distinct lives down throughout history. Not perfect, but different. And if you don't believe me on that still, I want you to just read through this book that we spend time in every single week. Have you met some of the people that God uses to tell people about himself in this book? Like, have you read any of the stories about David? I'll just go ahead and tell you, if David from the Old Testament applied for a job at City Church, like, we're not even giving him an interview. Like, he's not even making it to the first round, some of the things that he was involved with. Uh, have you read about Moses? Moses literally killed a guy with his bare hands before God called him into ministry. Have you read about Rahab, the prostitute who lied to protect God's people and then is held up as an example throughout the scriptures? 
Have you read about Paul in the New Testament, the guy that we just read from in Colossians? How about Noah? Noah was one of the most righteous people God could find on planet Earth at one point, so he puts him and his family on a boat to get them through the flood, and then one of the first things that Noah does after he gets off of this boat is that he gets wasted and passes out naked in a tent. Like, just goes straight, like, rural Kentucky on him in that moment. <laughs> I'm also sorry if you're from rural Kentucky. I'm not exactly (laughs) sure where that came from. But you get the point. I mean, these are the types of people that God uses in the scriptures to tell people about who he is. If there is one thing that this book screams at us from beginning to end, it's that God has no expectation that his people will be perfect. I don't even know where we got that idea but he does invite his people to be different. He thinks you and I, with all of our failures, all of our flaws, all of our sins, all of our hangups, all of our struggles, that we, you and I, can be a refreshing kind of different to the world around us. He thinks we can be his representative to a world that desperately needs it. How amazing is God? And I'll just add this in case it takes any additional pressure off. I don't know that it has ever been easier to stand out as a follower of Jesus. Like right now, if people in your life know that you're a Christian, here's what they are likely expecting you to be. Condescending, self-righteous, yelling about politics all of the time, and hateful towards every person who lives a lifestyle that you disapprove of. That's what people are expecting you to be. Do you realize how low that bar is? Like if you can somehow manage to be a warm, friendly, compassionate person half of the time, you will probably exceed all expectations that people have of you as a Christian. I don't know about you, but I feel like that's achievable, right? I don't know that it has ever been easier to stand out as a follower of Jesus. But all of this to say, here's my question for you and for I, for all of us in this room. If we're followers of Jesus, if we claim to belong to Jesus, very simple question. Are you, as a follower of Jesus, different? Are you different? Are you distinct? Not perfect, mind you, but different. Does your life look different? Like, if your life was in a lineup with four other people in your stage of life, in your socioeconomic bracket, whatever it is, if your life was in a lineup with four other people who don't know Jesus, would anything about your life stand out from them? If a coworker or a classmate or a friend of yours who doesn't follow Jesus just observed your life for a year, would anything about it seem radically different from theirs? Would anything stand out to them? Would anything be different in your life about how you use your words from the average person? Would anything about your life be different about how you handle your relationships with other people, how you handle conflict and tension and drama? Would anything be different about the way you handle your money? The type of place that you live, the type of car that you drive? Would anything be different about your possessions? 
Would anything be different about the way that you approach and think about and talk about sex and sexuality? Would anything be different about the way that you spend your time, the things that you give your effort and attention and energy to? Would anything be different about the way that you approach your singleness, about the way that you approach your marriage, about the way that you approach your parenting? Would any of that stand out from the average person in our world? You fill in the blank. I'm just asking you to answer honestly. If a person compared your life to the life of someone who doesn't follow Jesus, would there be any noticeable differences for them to pick up on? And please, again, hear my heart here. I'm not saying this to shame you or condemn you or give you more ammo to beat yourself up over. God knows none of us need that. All of us are at different stages in our journey with Jesus. We're all at various points in our journey of spiritual maturity. We probably have some areas in our life where we feel like we're doing well and others where we feel like we're not doing well at all. I recognize and acknowledge every bit of that. But if we've been following Jesus for very long at all, there should at least be some things that we can point to and go, my life is different here because of Jesus. My life is different there because of Jesus' work in my life and in my heart. My life is distinct here because Jesus has radically transformed the way that I think and act by his grace. And according to 1 Peter and Colossians, those are the types of things that eventually invite questions from people around us that don't follow Jesus. So let me just give two final clarifiers here and then we'll wrap things up. First, this whole idea, this concept, assumes that you have friendships with people who don't follow Jesus. I hope we see that. It, it assumes that we have friendships with those who don't yet follow Jesus, like actual friendships, where you talk about things, where you shoot the breeze with one another, where you know one another and know some things about one another. All of this assumes that you are living life closely enough with people that don't follow Jesus for them to pick up on things in your life that are actually different. So if the most that you ever talk to your coworkers is a disgruntled good morning on the way into your office, they're probably not gonna be able to pick up on parts of your life that are different, right? If they have a limited view into your life, there's no way for this to happen. This whole idea from Colossians and 1 Peter assumes that you have taken the time and the effort to build friendships with people in your world who don't yet know Jesus. So if you're not there yet, start there. That's a great place to start. Build friendships with people that don't yet know Jesus in your life. But that's clarifier number one. That has to happen for this to happen. And then second clarifier, and this one's really important that you guys hear, I want to be very clear that even though the hope is that people see the way that we live and ask questions, I need us to know that that's not the primary reason that we live differently. Like, it's not just for appearances. Jesus actually warns against that in Matthew 6 and 7. It's not just so that we can be seen by others. The core reason that we live differently as followers of Jesus is because Jesus is worth living differently. 
He's worth it. He is Lord. Jesus has demonstrated that he is infinitely worthy of anything we have to give up, anything we have to grow into, anything we have to sacrifice to be who he made us to be. The Old Testament makes it very, very clear. We should be holy and distinct because God is holy and distinct. So whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever it means, God is infinitely worthy of all of it because that is who he is and that is what he has done for us. Everything we do as followers of Jesus is a response to that is made possible by that. And the hope is that along the way, that prompts some questions. So our practice this week is simply called a distinctiveness inventory. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's an opportunity to take an inventory of your life and ask the question, how distinctive am I here? What are the primary differences between the way I go about this area of my life and the way that the average non-Christian would go about this area of their life? And as you do that, where there are substantial differences present in your life because of Jesus, I want you to celebrate that. I want you to thank God for his work via his spirit in your heart to make you different and distinct over time. I want you to celebrate that reality. And then in the other areas where maybe there's not a ton of difference yet, spend some time thinking through what repentance might look like. What might it look like to become more and more like Jesus in this area of my life that maybe needs some attention? So that's what we're working through this week. Now let me say this. When it comes to this particular practice, I know a lot of our life groups have been working through these together uh, in community throughout the series, but I'm just going to say for this particular practice, the distinctiveness inventory, uh, I think it is a particularly good week for you to go through this with other followers of Jesus. And here's why. Um, If you've allowed people in your life group to get to know you much, they are probably going to be really helpful in speaking into what they've seen in different areas of your life, right? So there there may be some ways that you need to grow in distinctiveness that you could be blind to, and these people who have observed your life are going to be able to speak into that and help you see that. Or the reverse might be true in some areas. There might be some areas where you're beating yourself up and thinking there's no distinctiveness there, and they can speak in and go, hey, I've actually seen God grow you a ton in this. Like, what are you talking about? I know you can still grow. We can all still grow, but I want you to be encouraged because here's what I've seen true in your life already. And with all of it, what we need with every bit of this, anytime we're taking an honest look at our lives in this way, we need other people that can ground us and encourage us in the good news of Jesus, right? Because the tendency here is going to be to get real puffed up and arrogant about the areas where we are distinct and to get really despondent and depressed about the ways that we're not distinct. And I think walking through this with other followers of Jesus that know you gives them the opportunity to speak the hope of the gospel into your life in those moments. So just my suggestion, do it however you want, but I would strongly suggest working through this week's practice with other people that love Jesus in your life, with other people that have an up-close view into your life. But one way or another, 
We're going to spend some time this week working through this particular practice to help evaluate where we're at, to consider what the Spirit has already done in our life, and consider where we might can pursue growth and distinctiveness in the future. And in the meantime, we're going to pray that God uses the distinctiveness of our lives, wherever it is, wherever it exists, that God uses that to bring opportunities for us to articulate the reason for the hope that we have. And those are opportunities to talk about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you've made possible through your son, Jesus. God, thank you that you don't expect perfection of us. God, that you're not after us pretending to be somebody we're not. Thank you that the cross is all we need to be seen as holy and righteous and blameless in your sight. That you accept us because of Jesus and not because of us. And God, we thank you that realizing that, that resting in that gives us the motivation and the freedom to grow into who you made us to be. God, thank you that you accept us just as we are, but that you do not leave us just as we are, that you form us more and more into who you made us to be and what you designed us to do. And that day by day, as Paul says elsewhere, in, in one in, in increasing glory, from one degree of glory to the next, we're becoming more and more like you. So God, would you give us grace in the meantime? Would you give us compassion for others and for ourselves? Would you help us not to beat ourselves up, but would you help us by your grace, the freedom that you've granted us in Jesus, would you help us to grow more and more into all of that? And part of that is putting on display who you are and what you designed life to be so that other people can take note of it and be drawn to your kingdom, be drawn to the same grace, the same freedom that we have. But God, we confess this morning that we are entirely reliant on your spirit to do all of this in us. This is not something that we can conjure up or muster up. This is not something we can do on our own. It is something that we need the work of your Holy Spirit to do in us each and every day, each and every minute. So God, we ask for a, a deeper reliance in us on the Spirit of God. That you would fill us, that you would remind us of who we are. That 
you'd help us to see you more clearly. And that somehow through all of that, more and more people in our world might see who you are more clearly. So God, we accept that task, but we also accept the grace and compassion you've given us to transform us into people who can fulfill it. So God, we ask by your spirit, would you come and would you inhabit every fiber of our beings to make us into that? We thank you for your faithfulness to do it. We ask this in your name. Amen.